Again, Mark chapter 7. Two really remarkable stories here as we're rounding out chapter 7 and jumping into chapter 8. And actually, we're going to pause here uh, in, our, in our study of Mark, and we're going to start a new series next week for about a month before we jump back into uh, the book of Mark here uh, in, a few, in a month or so. Uh, and so again, as we finish this out this, this morning, uh, I invite you to turn with me again to Mark chapter 7. We looked last week at this remarkable woman, this Gentile woman. So Jesus is now in Gentile territory. He has left Israel and the surrounding areas in the Galilee area, the Sea of Galilee, in uh, Capernaum. And then as he's left this area, we find him going, as it tells us here in our passage this morning, he's returning from the region of Tyre. But first, he was in Tyre and Sidon. That's where we looked last week in verse 24. As he enters Tyre and Sidon, to just give you a picture of where Tyre and Sidon are, it's more towards uh, the, the Lebanon area that we have current day when you have Lebanon. So Tyre and Sidon is north, a good bit north of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And as you go north, this is the way that Jesus is going on his route in this time of outside of the camp of Israel, outside to the nations. And what we're going to see this morning is God's heart for the nations. We've been singing about this this morning. Let the nations be glad, all creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voice and let them sing. Oh, praise Him. This is our theme, but this is what we see modeled by Christ as His heart is for the nations. Last week, it might have been a little bit like confusing. You're like, are you sure Jesus has a heart for the nations? Uh, it seems like He called a woman who was an outsider from the camp of Israel a dog. As we saw last week, and if you weren't here and you're like, well, what does he mean by that? Well, you can listen to last week's message, or I can give you a quick summary. And I'll give you a quick summary, just in case. I don't trust you to go back and watch last week's message, probably. But it says, he says this in verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first. What he's meaning is this, his mission, Jesus' mission on earth was to the nation of Israel. He had come as that is his purpose. He's coming as the Jewish Messiah, the promised one of Old Testament history. He comes in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law. All the Old Testament promises were pointing to him coming to the people of Israel. And here he's giving this remarkable parable to this woman because she's desiring her, her daughter to be healed of a demon possession. And he looks at her and he says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And rather than her being like, what, you're calling me a dog? Get offended by this statement. She actually understood what Jesus was saying, which is really remarkable because no one else in the the gospels that we're reading, no one else understands his parables. When he gives a parable, they're looking at him like, What do you mean? And then Jesus would go and explain further the parable to his disciples. But the crowds, the people, they're going like, he's speaking in parables. It sounds so amazing, but we have no idea what he means. And so you give greater meaning to the disciples. But here, a Gentile, an unclean woman, someone outside of Israel, understands Jesus' parable. First person to do this. Remarkable. And instead of going like, you're calling me a dog, rather she remarkably, humbly, but yet boldly, says in response to Jesus, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What she is saying is, I understand you came to the Jews. I understand you came to your people. These are your people. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the children's table. 
meaning there's enough left over for me, and I gladly will take the crumbs from you. This is her response. It's a wonderful, remarkable uh, showing of great faith in Jesus' power and also who he is. In Matthew's version, we see that she makes a a very strong statement of son of David. I mean, she recognized who he was, that he is the promised one. She, like so many others, have no clue who Jesus is, but yet here in a remarkable statement and a remarkable story, she did. And what we see this morning in our passage as the story continues and as there's another healing, we see that there is plenty of bread for all the nations. And we're going to see Jesus' heart for the nations. Look again in verse 31 as, as Levi was reading earlier. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. In the region of the Decapolis. So again, sorry I don't have a a, a map to put on the screens for you, but basically if you have a picture of Israel and so you have the Sea of Galilee, it's on the opposite side of Capernaum. So when you hear them going across the lake, a lot of times, I mean it's a big lake for one, and they cross this lake and you get to Gentile territory on the other side, and as you get to the other side, that's where you get to the Decapolis the Decapolis was ten, meaning Deca, ten cities. And these were ten kind of Roman-ruled, kind of Roman-Greek culture and all those outside of Israel culture in this area. These are Gentiles. And again, if I haven't made that clear, what a Gentile simply is, is a non-Jew. The way it's described in all of Scripture is just, that's what it means. So there's Jews and then there's non-Jews. And the word they use for non-Jews, Gentiles. And so here he is now, and he's been in Gentile territory. But what's really remarkable about this is he went all the way north to Tyre and Sidon. It's like he did this horseshoe and then around and up above the Sea of Galilee and then back down to the Decapolis. This is 120 miles. 120 miles of a journey with a mission in mind. Yes, it could have been because he's avoiding the Herodians and others and the different ones who were wanting Jesus to be killed, and so he's staying out, kind of getting away from the crowds, trying to get away from the the potential for rebellion and the potential for things to go awry and the nations to, to try to overthrow and throw him, to force him to be king like we've already seen. But I also think is in these stories, we see there's a purpose to his mission. There is more enough bread to go around than even just crumbs. What we're going to see, as we just read, is the feeding of the 4,000 is there's plenty to eat. But there's always a greater story to learn from these, and so that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. And so it says he comes to Decapolis in verse 32, and they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now here's the question, right? He's in the Decapolis. He's outside of Israel. How do these friends know to take him to Jesus? How have they heard who this Jesus is and that he can heal a disease or he can raise the dead? How do they know these things? If you turn in your Bible, just briefly back a few pages to Mark chapter 5 in a story, if you remember, Jesus Remember the the story of the calming of the storm? Jesus is in the boat sleeping. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are terrified. And they're like, we're going to die out here. What are you doing? Wake up, Jesus. And Jesus wakes up and he tells the storm to be still. The storm stops. And as soon as they get to the other side, I'm skipping a lot there. I mean, there's a lot (laughs) packed in those statements. They're like, whoa, who who is this that can calm the seas? Who has control over these things? 
Is Jesus more than just a good man? Is he more than just a prophet? Is he more than just this rabbi, great teacher? Only God can control nature. Is he God? And they get to the other side, and what does it tell us in Mark chapter 5? If you have a Bible there, you can see it in verse 19 as we find what happens is in the whole story, Jesus is immediately met with a demon-possessed man, a crazy man. This man was, was, was going berserk and wild, and they would chain him up, and they still he would break the chains free. And this demon-possessed man runs up to Jesus and says, what do you have to do with us, most high God, son of most high God? You come to torture us now? And Jesus cast out this demon, and this man who was freed, this man who had been crazy, but if you know the story in, in Mark 5, the people were mad and upset, and they wanted to send Jesus away. Don't stay here. You terrify us. They went from terrified of a demon-possessed man to now terrified of Jesus. Why? Because he had this authority that terrified him. And they cast the demons out, and the demons go into these, this herd of pigs, and these pigs go off the cliff. And then, and then here, Jesus heals this man. And look at verse 19. When the man wants and says, hey, I want to follow you. This man has been freed. I want to follow you. Like, let me be one of your disciples. I'll go with you. Let me go with you. What does he say in verse 19? And he did not permit him and said to him, go home to your friends. He's telling this demon-possessed man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and notice this, look at verse 20, this helps us with this chapter. And he went away and began to proclaim where? In the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. You see, these people wanted Jesus gone and Jesus only healed this man. It's like he he got off a boat, heals this man, got back on a boat and left. Went in and out really fast. Didn't even enter into the Decapolis. But here, this man, he says, stay and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And so what we see here is this man has been at work. (laughs) He has been sharing the good news. He's been sharing how much the Lord has done for him. And people of now are saying, okay, let's take our friends to him. They're not saying, get away from us. We're terrified of you. Rather, they're saying, come to us. Come back. And here they find their friends who are hurting and struggling and broken. And here this man who is deaf and mute, and isn't able to speak, their friends, his friends, bring him to Jesus. And what are they doing? They're begging him. Rather than begging him in chapter 5 to leave, they're begging him to lay his hands on him. What a remarkable shift. And I want you just to see the side note before we get into the main points of this message. Side note is this. Did you, did you see the effects of letting people know how good the Lord has been to you and how he's been merciful to you. This man was changed. And what does he do? He goes, he goes around the Decapolis in these 10 cities and he starts telling everyone he runs into and everyone that he can how much God has done for him. And it seems to be working. The people are interested. The people are wanting to see and know who is this Jesus and as he's proclaiming people are coming to know him and know about him and hearing the stories and that gets us to where we are in this story and where I want the bulk of our message to focus on and what I want us to see this morning my kind of aim with this passage is to help us see how we should approach the world how do we approach the world what should our heart and our posture be to this whole world the people in our cities that we live in here, to the very furthest place on earth. 
Where, what should it be our posture to these people? What should our heart be like? And what I want to say is I want it to be like Jesus' heart. And so this morning, as we look at these, this healing and then this feeding, I want us to see these aspects of it. And first is this. I want you to notice the first thing that we see. And we're saying, like, how should we approach the world? We should be like Jesus, and we should look to heaven. We should be like Jesus and look to heaven. And so notice what happens here as we follow Jesus through this healing. It tells us this in verse 37, as they begged him to lay his hands on him. It says in verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. Notice that. This man has probably been potentially mocked, looked down on. And here Jesus doesn't want a spectacle. He's not about a spectacle. He's not about getting this following of a people who are amazed at his miracles. He's not like putting on a show like you see in some of the, the faith healers of our day who want to do it in front of a huge crowd. Let's get a crowd. Let's bring up people up here and let's, let's lay our hands on them or in front of everyone and let's show them the power of God and what he can do. Now, Jesus takes him aside from the crowd privately. And notice what he does. He puts, it into, puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And notice this right here in verse 34. What does he do? And he looks up to heaven. I think this is so important for us. When we think about the nations, we have to first start with looking upward. We have to look to heaven. We have to look to the source of our power. How can we reach the nations? What do we need to start with? I need to start with prayer. I read as I was studying for this passage this week, in one of the commentaries he was talking about, saying that one of the greatest sins of our, of our people, of, our, of the nation, of Christians even, one of the greatest sins isn't you know, the things you would think, oh, it's lust, it's greed, it's pride, it's all these things. What he was saying, it was prayerlessness. And when you think about prayerlessness, I was thinking about Alexander McLaren. He's a commentary, well-known commentator on several books of the Bible. And on Mark, he said this, If we would give sight to the blind, we must ourselves be gazing into heaven. If we want to go to the nations, if we want to share the hope of the gospel, if we want to tell others about what Jesus has done for us, where should we start? We should start with prayer. We should start with going to heaven. We should be going to our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer. Here's the question. Does, does our hearts, we might look at the crowds and be, we might look at the people around us. You maybe go to the Mall of Georgia on a Saturday afternoon or maybe you're like, absolutely not. I would never go there. But if you go there and you're seeing all the crowds because you're like, that's why I wouldn't go there. It's because that's where the crowds are and the traffic's terrible at that exit. But as you look at people, do you just look at them and, and see them as humans? Do you not see them as humans? Do you see them as people? Do you see the brokenness of our world? Do you recognize these things? And if you do, what do you do about it? Sadly, probably most of us do nothing about it. We, we go to find our shoes that we're looking to find at the store, and we move on, or we go get whatever it is, or go to eat out or something like that, and we just move on, and we never think, even consider about the brokenness and the hurting people around us. 
But here, as Jesus is looking at this person, as he takes him aside, he looks upward. This is Jesus. Jesus is always fulfilling the Father's will perfectly. He's always doing what is commanded of him. He is always coming to do the perfect will of God, and he looks first to God. And again, as Alexander McLaren said, if we would give sight to the blind, we must ourselves be gazing into heaven. So like Jesus, we should first look to heaven. Secondly, like Jesus, we should sigh at the brokenness of our world. Do you see what Jesus did? Verse 34, and looking up to heaven. So he looks up to heaven. He's doing the will of the Father. And he just sighs. What is that? I've been reflecting on that all week. Jesus sighed. I can't help but think that he's looking at this man and his heart is full of compassion. He's full of sorrow over this man's condition. He's sorrowful to see the effects of how creation was started and how sin has just utterly marred everything. And he sighs and he looks on at the, at the effects that sin and the world and brokenness has brought upon this creation, his creation. And he sighs over it. I want to ask you, does our hearts burn with sorrow and sadness over the brokenness of the world? Are we moved by it anymore? Do we see the, the addictions, the struggles? Do we see the people who are anxious about their lives and worried about the next thing? Or have you, do you notice the, the, I mean, the hospital's full of, of disease and full of hurts? Do you see the broken relationships? Do you see these things? And does your heart just sigh within you? Do you identify with the brokenness of this world and your heart be moved with compassion? Or do you just avoid looking at them in that way? When you see the family on the side of the road, homeless, do you try to avoid them? Like If I don't make eye contact, they won't make eye contact to me. And so we don't look at them. Or a coworker who's going through hardship, Maybe going through a, an ugly divorce, do you look at that and just sigh over the brokenness of our world, that relationships break? Do you watch the news and get depressed? I think we all do, <laughs> right? But when you look at that, do you just see the brokenness? Do you see with Jesus' eyes as he's looking intently at this man and he just sighs. You see the compassion. We see his compassion in verse 2 of chapter 8. I have, this is the only time that he says it. All the other times when it talks about Jesus had compassion, it was from the writer's perspective saying Jesus looked on the crowd and had compassion for them. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that we have Jesus saying, I have compassion on the crowd. He looks at the crowd and he hurts. He identifies with them. You can hear it. He's, he's saying, these people have been here all day for three days, and they haven't hardly had anything to eat. He sees the crowds, and he, 
His heart melts for these people. The question is, are we stale to these things? When you're reading the Gospels, you see Jesus as He comes to Lazarus' tomb. And He sees Mary and Martha. They're weeping and there's death's effects on a person, sin and its brokenness bringing forth death on a person and a friend. What does it tell us? The shortest verse in all of the Bible, Jesus wept. He's not emotionless. He's not distant. He feels your pain. He feels the pain of the world. He sees the effects of it. And here's the beauty, and we're going to talk about this later, is he came to fix it. He doesn't just go, oh man, oh, this is just brutal. What will they do to make this better? No, he comes with a solution. He comes with bread. It's a picture of life. The Bible tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Those who look on the crowds and have compassion, when you look at people, do you see souls? Do you see people who are hurting? Do we care? You see, we need to be like Jesus. We should, yes, go to Him. We should go to Him and seek His help. We should go in prayer and praying for the nations, praying for neighbors, praying for the lost, praying for those that you come across and know who are hurting as you, as you hear stories. Yes, we should do that, but we should also look like Jesus and sigh at the brokenness of our world and looking on at it. Number three is this, like Jesus, we should be up close and personal. Like Jesus, we should be up close and personal. That goes back to kind of an odd healing story. You're like, Eric, you didn't explain anything there yet. So back to verse 33. So Jesus... He pulls this man aside. He looks at him, and it tells us in verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears. You're like, why did he put his fingers in his ears? And after spitting, he touches his tongue. Then he looks up to heaven. Then he sighs and says an Aramaic word, ephatha, that Levi worked hard on. It's a good job. <laughs> but what is Jesus doing here? Why is he sticking his fingers in this man's ears? Why isn't he just saying, be open, be healed, you're healed? I mean, the demon-possessed daughter, he didn't even go there. He just said, your faith, it's been done for you already. And sure enough, it tells us the end of verse, in verse 30, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus doesn't need to touch. He doesn't need to be there. He can do it from a distance, but he doesn't. Mostly, hardly ever do it from a distance. Jesus is the model of coming. He incarnated himself. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus came. He didn't sit up at a throne in heaven and look down at the brokenness of the world and just look at it and say, all right, I'm going to do something about this. All right, you do this, you do that. Here, we're going to heal everyone and everything's going to be great. Salvation's coming. Nope, he came. Jesus came and he invades the world. He doesn't do this from a distance. He engages in hands-on ministry. And that's exactly what we should be doing when our hearts are for the nations. We should, yes, we can give to the nations. We can give to, to the poor. But more than that is even our hands, our physical bodies. We have to be with people. We have to engage in hands-on ministry. 
We need to be up close and personal like Jesus. And here, Jesus, in a remarkable statement, and almost all the different commentaries I've heard of, you know, trying to like figure out, like, what does this exactly mean? Most have agreed and said this was a form of sign language. This man can't hear, he can't speak, he probably can't read or write. And Jesus looks at him and he's explaining to him what I'm about to do for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal your ears. I'm going to make your voice speak again. Your tongue is going to be loosed. Here's what I'm about to do. And then he says the word, Ephatha, be opened. Literally what that means is be set free. The chains of your tongue be loosed. You're set free. You're no longer bound anymore. Be healed, be opened. But this takes place in close contact. You see, Jesus had compassion on the crowds, not from a distance. He had a compassion as he walks around. He's near the people. He's with the disciples. He's with Lazarus. Lazarus. He's with others as he goes around. He's there with them. He goes to them. He reaches to them. And see, Jesus did what was necessary to reach this man. He takes him away from the crowd. This wasn't for attention. He gets away with him privately. He touches him. He places his fingers in his ear. He puts some spit on his finger and touches his tongue and says, what I am doing here is I am about to heal you. How about us? Are we close enough to people to know that people are hurting. Yes, we can say generally people are hurting. But how do you know the person sitting in your section is hurting or not if you're not near them, if you're not in their life? How do we know that the people in faraway places are hurting? How do those people hear about the gospel if someone doesn't go to those people? Not be like, hey, you need to know, let me, dro- let me fly over and drop some Bibles, good luck figuring it out. No, someone goes, they teach them their language, they learn their language, they, they ingrain themselves in culture, they learn their language, they get to know them, they get to know those people, the way they think, the way they function, the way they, their society functions, they learn about them and those people, and then they want to lovingly teach them and show them, let me show you what these verses mean, not just figure it out, I hope, good luck. No, they go. In Matthew 25, I was reading in a devotion recently that I've been going through. And in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, Jesus is talking about final judgment. He's talking about separating the sheep from the goats, and it's pretty, pretty tough language to hear. But notice what he says in verse 35 of chapter 25. For I was hungry. Because they're like, well... You know, from all these things, like, how do we know that we did these things? And here's what he says. He says, for I was hungry. Jesus saying that, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, we serve our Savior by serving others. We join Him in His mission of redemption and restoring all things by our going and sharing. And we don't do this from a distance. We do it up close and personal. Notice these statements, the statements that are here. You can't do these things from a distance. You have to incarnate yourself. You have to live among people. You have to be engaged in their lives to know that they are hurting, how you can help meet them. But we notice the language that he's saying here. He's like, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. You don't do those things from a distance. You do those personally. You help give someone some clothes. You visit someone who was in prison, and you came to me. You didn't treat them as an outcast or too far gone. He went after them. And that's the call of us. We, like Jesus, need to be up close and personal if we want to reach the nations. Yes, it doesn't mean all of us are going to like, all right, next week, Redeemer's closed. We're all going to Africa. You know, no. But God might raise up some. We want to be a sending church. There's goers, there's senders, but listen, it starts at home. It starts right here. It starts with being engaged with who are your neighbors, getting to know them. It starts with getting to know the people in your community. It gets to where do they hang out? Where do they go? Where is the gathering points in this community? Where, what restaurants are they going? They're going to all the different ones. How can you get to know? To go? Man, I'm going to go to the same exact Starbucks every Monday morning or Tuesday, every day or whatever you do for coffee until I can see that exact same person. So I can get to know them. And then before you know it, you're striking up conversation. They're like, oh, how's your family? You know, all these things. And all of a sudden, you get to know this person. And now that you know, you can actually do something about it. This is what Jesus models for us. And so like Jesus, we should be up close and personal. And finally, like Jesus, it's a little different though with this one. Like Jesus, uh, we point others to him. See, like Jesus, Jesus points, points to himself. I am the bread of life. So in a similar way, like Jesus, instead of pointing to ourselves, hey, follow my example, or like, hey, just come to church. No, I'm pointing people to Jesus. Jesus was pointing people to himself. If you notice, I read it earlier, the Pharisees came in verse 11 of chapter 8. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed, again, here's that sighing. You know, if you've ever asked a question and someone sighs first, you're like, that's probably not a good question, or that was a tough one. Oh boy, here we go again, you know. He sighs deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why does this generation not get a sign? I'm here. I, you don't need a sign. The God of the universe, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer is here. And this is what he's even doing in this feeding of the 4,000s. But notice again, this is not a repeat of the first one. You're like, and they got the numbers wrong or something. It was like, I thought it was 5,000. Now it's 4,000. This is a different story. And in this feeding, it's to the nations. It's to the Gentiles. He's going to the Gentiles saying, there is enough bread for you. It is not even just crumbs. You get more than enough and there will always be enough. And that's why we get this incredible story of feeding the thousands. 
And in all of this, Jesus is pointing to himself as, I am the bread of life. The bread that I give never runs out. It's more than enough, as they say in verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied. And what happens? They took up leftovers. There was more than enough, even though it started with so little, but when Jesus takes anything, he can make it to infinite whatever he wants it to be. There's always more than enough, and there's more than enough grace. But listen, it's great to have a heart for the people of the world and look at brokenness and sigh in our heart and be like, man, and even call out to Jesus and say, come, Lord Jesus, come, redeem, restore this brokenness in our world. I cannot wait for righteousness to reign and rule in our hearts and in our lives. And you're longing for these days and longing for these things. Yes, we do. But it's, more, it's not enough to just have a heart and be engaged and love people. And let, let, me, let me feed you. Let me help you. Let me do these things. We can do compassion ministry and mercy ministries all we want to this whole community. We can give water. We're going to help get water to the nations. We're going we're gonna to attack uh, the, the trash and all the things. And we can try to care for this planet, all these things. It's great that we have compassion for the nations. But what's the message? What do we bring We take them Jesus. We give them Jesus. We give them the bread of life. We point them to a Redeemer who didn't stay up in heaven but actually came. He invades and he comes to restore and redeem. And he came with an ultimate mission. This mission isn't what anyone else expected. No one was expecting it. Not even the Syrophoenician woman knew that Jesus was coming to die. He came with a mission, that mission was going to lead him to a cross, and he was going to allow himself to be murdered, brutally murdered and crucified. Why? Because there was no other way for mankind to be set free. There had to be payment for sin. You see, sin, the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And here's the reality is you can either pay for your sins either two ways. There's two ways to pay for your sin. I've said this several times now. There's two ways to pay for your sins. Either you can put your trust in Jesus as the payment for your sins, or you can pay for your own sins, but the way you're going to pay for your sins is for eternity in a place of torture, in a place far from God in hell for all of eternity. You can pay for your sins for eternity, meaning you just keep paying it. And you'll never stop paying it. That's the debt. But here's the incredible thought, the incredible, incredible truth, is that debt that is infinite was paid in full. Jesus declared this on the cross right before he died. He says, it is finished. This mission that I came for is complete. I've now satisfied the payment for sin. And because I have satisfied it, here's the beautiful thing. The story doesn't even end there. It ends, and it actually ends. It just really begins and continues on to this day and forevermore this direction and that direction or whichever direction it goes forever. It starts with he came back to life. He overcame the grave, meaning this. He has defeated sin and death for all of us, that those who identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection can have eternal life with him, and his payment is paid in full for us. It is complete. 
I just am putting my trust and my hope in this Jesus. This is the message we carry to the nations. We don't just, let me give you some water. We do this in the name of Jesus, and we tell them about Jesus. We show them the love of Jesus. We show them the care of Jesus. We show them what Jesus has done for them and what he's done for me. This is the message. And so, almost instead of saying like Jesus... (laughs) Unlike Jesus, there's no, we don't point to anyone, we don't point to ourselves. But only Jesus can do that and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The only way that we could ever be in the presence of an almighty, holy, perfectly, infinite God is because Jesus, His righteousness, stands in the gap for us best way I think I can explain that is like this, is thinking of in Ukraine, you're thinking all the the drone attacks and all the things and this nuclear threat and all these things, is to think of God's wrath for sin, his payment for sin, his or his punishment for sin is like an atomic bomb is pointing and God's wrath is pointing right at you. You deserve it because you're a sinner and you have broken relationship with God. Every person who's ever lived That wrath is pointed right at you, and you deserve every bit of it. That is going to be payment that's not just going to end your life. It's just going to lead you to paying for your sin for all of eternity. But Jesus comes. God himself comes. And he stands through the cross in your way and says, I will absorb God's wrath for you. Instead of you getting the nuke, I will take it for you. And when he does that, he provides a way for us to be made right with him. This is Jesus. This is what's happening, even in the story of the feeding of the thousands. He's broken. He looks at the world and his heart is broken over the people, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to show you that I am the bread of life, that whoever feasts on me, whoever puts their full trust, rest in what I will do for them, will have eternal life. You will never hunger or thirst again. This is the message. This is our call in life. This is why we live. This is why Jesus doesn't just say, all right, glad you love me and follow me now. Come on, join me in heaven. No, he leaves you. He leaves you with a mission, and we're to be like Jesus and pay attention, have a heart for the nations. And we, like Jesus, should sigh over the brokenness, and we should try to engage it and and share the love of God into the lives of people. We're to care for the nations and care for the people right around us. But we go first to the source of that, and we are not the source. God is the source, but he says, I'm going to leave you my spirit within you as my followers, so that you can go in power and you can proclaim and I will give you the words to say. I will lead you and give you opportunities to share the hope of the gospel with and I will help you. I will be there with you. These are promises. This is our mission. It's the mission of Redeemer. Why we even start a church. Um, almost two years ago, we first met in a home. It was, it was next, it'd be next Sunday. It'd be two years that we kind of first were beginning to meet as a about 11 adults in a home with a love for people and a love for God and a love to let people know about Him. And this is why we meet every week, to learn more about Jesus, to learn 
what his heart is like, and here we get to see his heart and how we are to be like him. So let's live that way on mission this week. As we go into a new school year and a summer, you know, to start school and all those things, you're going to be on mission. Like, kids, you can be on mission. You can do these things. It doesn't have to be an adult. This doesn't need to be, once I grow up, I'll do this. No, you can do this right now. You can do this in your neighborhood at the pool. You can do this as you're in a sports team or you're in a classroom setting. You can live and show the love of Christ to people. You can help meet broken needs. When people are hurting, a lot of times the hurting people hurt people. So if you feel like, man, I'm being hurt, this person's bullying, most likely he's hurting or she's hurting somewhere. Show love. Rather than retaliate, love. Let's live with people. Let's live on mission. Let me pray. Father, again, we want to humble ourselves and say we cannot do any of this on our own. We are absolutely, utterly incapable. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be like you. Help us to have a heart for the nations like you. Help us to love people like you. Help us to meet needs like you met needs. And we do all this because you have given us because you have all authority in heaven and on earth, and you have given it to us, your disciples, your followers, to go and make disciples of all nations. So may we join you in your mission, may we follow your command, and may we love the people around us, have a heart like yours. Help us in all these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.